All right. First Samuel. First Samuel could be summed up in this one phrase. First Samuel is the road to the king. Okay, so it comes right on the heels of Judges. For the last 400 or so years, the children of Israel have been living in the promised land, but it hasn't been super promising, has it? See, it was supposed to be a theocracy. The idea was that the children of Israel would go in, they would live in the promised land, and they would commune directly with God through the priests and through the tabernacle and through sacrifices, and God would be their guide. But the people, we find out, can't follow God like that. It's the overarching theme of this. The theme we're supposed to get from judges is this. People left to their own devices, they're not very good at following God. Left to my own devices, I'm not very good at following the Lord. There's a phrase that it comes up over and over and over again in judges, and it's this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. And so now, as we come into 1 Samuel, we're going to be transitioning. We're going to be transitioning from that theocracy, from that time of the judges, for that time of really epic failure for the people of Israel, to now we're going to get a king. Now there's going to be a king in the land, but as we go through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles, we're not doing them all in that order, it's okay. But as we go through those, what you're going to see in the Bible is this. Kings are great, but human kings are a failure, aren't they? Even the best we have to offer in a human king, David, that man who's after the Lord's own heart, that man who slayed giants, he blew it big time, didn't he? And what we're supposed to see through this overall narrative of the Old Testament is this. Without a king, we each do what is right in our own sight. But when our king is a human king, we're just as big of a failure. What we need is a better king. It's why the Gospel of Matthew actually starts out with a genealogy. Hey, Matthew says, a new king is coming. King Jesus. Because only through following King Jesus am I able to follow and serve the Lord. But right now, we're going into Samuel, and we're going, okay, here we are. It's the road to the king. And what I love about Samuel, at least for me, is I get kind of back on familiar footing with Samuel as far as like the characters are concerned. So I don't know if you're like me, but the Old Testament characters are kind of like the presidents of the United States. Okay, like I start out really good. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, you got George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, right? And then we kind of get like, okay, now, now we're in the judges area and we only get kind of the highlights, right? Because after about Madison and Monroe, I'm like, um, Lincoln, Grant, there was a few other, there were some Roosevelt's, I'm sure there was some Roosevelt's, right? And if you keep going on the list, then we get to like Kennedy. And I'm like, sweet, now I can do, I can take it over from here. From Kennedy, I can move my way forward. That's kind of what we do here. We've gotten through judges. We knew a few of the characters off the top of our heads, our Gideons and our Samsons, but most of them, we kind of don't know a lot about them. But now we're back because we've got four huge characters in the book of Samuel, characters we get to study, and they're awesome. The first guy we're going to meet tonight, and he's Samuel. He is the final just judge. Samuel really is the final judge from the book of Judges. And then as we go forward in this book, we're going to meet Saul. Saul is the first fleshly king. 
And a little further, we were going to meet this awesome guy named Jonathan. Jonathan is an amazing dude. Jonathan is the faithful friend. And then near the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we get introduced to David. David does not become a king in Samuel, so in 1 Samuel, we see David as the fearless fighter. And then 2 Samuel, we'll really dive into David as the king. Okay, so those are our characters. Those are who we get to look at. And then finally, the question we have right before we dive into this is, what is really the timeline of 1 Samuel? When does 1 Samuel begin? Because in my mind, it's always been like, Judges ended, Judges chapter 21. I taught it, I should know. 21. Judges chapter 21 ends, and then boom, Samuel's born. But when I went through this and I studied, it's so interesting. Samuel is born while Samson is still alive. So Samuel's born all the way back in like Judges chapter 17 and 18. And that's interesting to me because you guys remember how Judges ends, right? Judges ends with a Levite who's supposed to be a priestly character who has a concubine, which is a no-no. She gets raped. So he grabs her, cuts her up into a bunch of different pieces. Welcome back to the Old Testament. Males who throughout all of Israel, they all get mad. They wage war against one of their own tribesmen. And in the end of Judges, we see 65,000 Israelites killed by other Israelites. It's this crazy, crazy dark time. Ever feel like you're in dark times? What I find so interesting about 1 Samuel is that while we're looking at the end of Judges over here and where it's like, it's so dark, we don't even know that God is already doing something over here. In the midst of dark times, God is already raising up the deliverer, the person who's going to be really the kingmaker and move us from this area of darkness into this area of a theocracy, of a monarchy. I think that's so interesting to me. And so we begin in 1 Samuel chapter one, it says this. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Eliuhu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Yeah, that's a mouthful. If you're looking for names for sons, there you go. No one else in the kids' wing will have one of those. I have not met a Zuf. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. Do you guys recognize any of the names on that genealogy? No. You know what? That's the point. This guy's a nobody. He's not anybody special. He's not the son of a king. He's not the son of a judge. There's nobody in his lineage. There's nothing about this man right here would make us go, oh, this is going to be the guy. And yet this chapter, this new thing, this new work that the Lord is doing, it starts with this. There was a certain man. That phrase is used so many times in the Bible. There was a certain man. There was a certain woman. And then God's story blossoms out of that one person. And I think it's so interesting because so often we could stand in a time of the end of the judges and be like, wow, it is crazy evil times. God needs to do a massive work. And God goes, yeah, but I'm going to start my work with one man. I'm going to start my work with one woman. And what we see in this chapter is so interesting to me. Because see, it's not just evil times that our character uh, Elkanah comes into here. Elkanah also has, as we're going to see, he's got a messed up family, right? He's got a broken family, partially from his own foolish decisions, 
But that's where he's at. He's in evil times. He's got a broken family. And then in chapter, in verse three, we get introduced to two other characters in this story called Hophni and Phineas. Now, if you guys remember this, those are your evil dudes in the first part of Samuel. They're priests. They're priests in the temple and they're bad. They steal from the people coming to sacrifice to the Lord and they make women coming to the temple to pray to the Lord, sleep with them. They're extremely evil men. And we have to remember that at this point in time, the tabernacle, which is where they were ministering, that's the, that's the center of geopolitical power. So what you see as you walk into this and we meet this guy, Elkanah, we see a man who's living in evil times, in a broken family, and he's surrounded by a corrupt system. And yet we're gonna see God use him to start a whole new beautiful work. We're also gonna meet Hannah. Hannah's his wife. Hannah's in the same evil times. She's in the same broken family. She didn't break it. She's in a broken family, not of her own breaking, but it still affects her. And she's subject to this corrupt system. And yet God's gonna use her powerfully to start a whole new work. And if there's one overarching theme that I get from chapter one of 1 Samuel, it's this. It's a faithful man, because that's what we'll see that Elkanah is. He's flawed, no doubt. But a faithful man plus God is greater than evil times and a broken family and a corrupt system. And a praying woman plus God is greater than evil times and a broken family and a corrupt system. That's what we're gonna see. And those are not uh, gender specific. Like it's not that we need faithful men and praying women. I'm great with praying men and faithful women. We should both be people of both, right? But that's what we're gonna see, that God takes those characteristics of these unsung people and partnered with the Lord, they're greater than every obstacle that would seemingly stop them. It's beautiful. And it says in verse two, that this man Elkanah, he had two wives. Bad plan, okay? If you were wondering, bad plan. Doesn't work out well. This is his broken family. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Most likely, almost every commentary I read said this, Hannah was probably Elkanah's first wife, and when she couldn't have children, he married Peninnah. That was the practical solution to the problem of not having children. So having children was a really big deal. You needed to carry on the family name. You needed people to be helping you out on the farm. And so what Elkanah does here is it's practical, it's easy, and it totally meets with the current social wisdom. This is what you did. But was it obedient to God's plan in Genesis chapter one, where a man and his wife shall cleave together and become one flesh? It's not, is it? So what I see here right off the bat with our flawed but faithful Elkanah, as we'll see later, is this. He's choosing what's practical and what meets current social wisdom instead of obedience. He's choosing common sense and practicality over obedience, and I ask myself, like, how often do I do that? How often do we do that? 
in the name of practicality, right? It's just not practical for us to each be paying rent so we're moving in together even though we're not married. Or what about the case of social, current social wisdom, right? And parenting. What does the Bible say about parenting? It says, spare the rod and spoil the child. It says, discipline your children unto godliness. Well, now, it's an old book. And that defies all our current cultural wisdoms, doesn't it? All right, children need to be allowed to find their own paths. Disciplining a child will crush their spirit. I'm calling fooey on that whole system, right? False news. That's not what it says. But it's easier, isn't it? Parents, it's easier. Disciplining your kids is hard. It requires consistency. How many of you have ever like told your child that they're not allowed to do something and then like five minutes later you're like, well, this is dumb because now we're in a battle and I have got to stick this thing out. I got to see it to the end. I've got to be like, that was, <laughs> sorry, honey. <laughs> we're going to have a battle over here because I said something and now I have to mean what I say. It's hard. It's hard. But it's obedient to what God tells us to do, right? Do you tithe? Money? Well, it's just not practical. I mean, look at our budget. Oh, okay. Let's see. So you got two iPhone 12s you're making payments on and a couple of car payments. And it goes, oh, okay. So you mean it's not prioritized? Not that it's not practical. Everything is practical if we prioritize it. And it's obedience. Business owners, there is a lot of cash floating around our valley right now. It is pretty easy when it comes to tax time to do what is practical. And you can justify it too. Like, I don't want to give that crazy governor any more of my money than she needs. But is that obedient? Is that what the Lord said? Right? Give unto Caesar. So often we do the Elkanah path and we pick what is easy or practical over what is obedient. A healthy sex life inside of marriage is difficult. It requires communication and vulnerability and openness. You know what's easier and more convenient? Pornography. It's easier. It's more convenient. But it's exploding marriages. It is absolutely exploding marriages. And that's not supposed to be like a, 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 a guilt trip. There is no condemnation under the Father, right? What is the church supposed to be? We're supposed to be a hospital. Like if that's something you struggle with, this is the right place. There's, there's four, two, three communities. We have pastors who want to pray with you. We want to come alongside of you because it will, ticking time bomb, will explode your marriage. We see it every single day over there in counseling. Every day. It, it's, there's no way around it. And so we come back to this, and I just, it's, it was just a challenge for me. Like, how often do I make decisions practical? Because I'm a very practical, blue-collar guy. And how often do I come back to the Lord and I pray, and I go, wait, wait a minute. Practical is fine, as long as it's also obedient. As long as I'm also being obedient. Elkanah picked what was practical, and man, it causes a whole lot of problems in his family. Let's see how this plays out. Verse three, it says, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. All right, every year, Elkanah would take his family, his entire family, and they would travel. It's probably 17, 18 miles, which a bunch of kids, which no cars. This is not an easy journey. And they would go to Shiloh, to the place where the tabernacle was, and they would sacrifice to the Lord. And you see Elkanah doing this faithfully, year in and year out. And it's where the crux of our story happens is here at the tabernacle. Elkanah is faithful. He faithfully brings his family to a place of fellowship. And I want to just say congratulations and thank you to every dad, father, man who got their family here tonight. Because it's not always easy to do. And I know this. I know this about my own family. If dad wants to go to church, we're all going to church. And if dad is wishy-washy, tired, grumpy, just not feeling it, then it doesn't always happen. And I'm not saying moms, moms are the, I mean, moms make it happen, right? But if dad wants to go, moms are like, okay, we're making it happen. And I'm just, I love coming here every Wednesday night and seeing men faithfully bringing their families to fellowship. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And then I talk to some of these men and they're like, oh, I mean, we're having these issues at home and there's marriage problems and it's broken. And it's like, yep, exactly but it's the faithfulness that is really the character trait that God pairs with Elkanah and says, I'm gonna do something amazing out of that. Faithful men bringing their families to fellowship. It's beautiful. Verse six, and her rival, this is Peninnah, used to provoke her, Hannah, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? All right, anybody who's been married more than five years, husbands, um, good plan, bad plan here, the way he approaches his crying wife. Bad plan, all right? Like, she doesn't want a solution, especially if her, the solution is to invalidate her feelings, which is what he does. And then he asks a stupid question he already knows the answer to. Why are you crying? Aren't I more to you than 10 sons? Okay, so she, he knows. So just as a, this is not theological, this is not practical. I mean, this is just, husbands, if your wife is crying, she wants a hug and she wants you to listen, okay? Don't tell her why she shouldn't be crying or tell her that she shouldn't be crying because of how awesome you are. Because that's, that's what he does. He's like, why are you crying? I and mean, look at these guns. I, aren't I not the man? Dude, bad plan. Bad plan, okay? So <laughs> it's not working out so well. And Hannah is, um, this does not keep her from being upset, okay? Surprise, surprise, Hannah's still upset. And so she's gonna go and she's gonna pray about it. Verse nine, it says this. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant 
and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Anna, Hannah, not terribly comforted by her husband, goes to the temple and begins to pray. And here's what she prays. She says, Father, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you and he will be a Nazarite. When it says here that no razor was going to touch his head, that implies that Samuel was going to be a Nazarite from the day of his birth until the day of his death. He was never to cut his hair, which just as a, just as a side note, like when you hear stuff like that in the Old Testament and then you see the flannel graphs of like clean cut Samuel, no. Like the nattiest dreadlocks you've ever seen. In your, he's never going to cut his hair his entire life. It also means he's not supposed to be around dead things. It also means he's never supposed to drink wine or touch grapes. It's this, it's this crazy thing that Hannah says. says. Father, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And I think we gotta pause right here and ask a really important question, and it's this. Why had God closed Hannah's womb? Why? It's a huge point in this entire story, and it seems kinda interesting. It says that God closed her womb. And as I read through all these different commentaries, there was a bunch of different ideas, and honestly, I think a lot of them were awful. The first one was this. It was because there was some sin in her life. Where is that? Where does it say that? And is that how God operates? They said this. This was the, the idea was that it was some sin in her life, specifically that she had put having a child on such a pedestal that she was idolizing them. Like, you were idolizing something you didn't already have. In the, it makes no sense to me. There is no sin in Hannah's life. This is not what the Lord is doing here. But it's so easy for us, when we are in times of barrenness or distress, to be like, okay, well, is this some sin? Is this something I did? Right? And then the next idea is this. God was waiting for Hannah to get to the point where she would be willing to give up her child. So the idea here was put forward by a bunch of people I was reading is this, like God was holding, withholding a child from Hannah so that she would get to the point where she would offer to give the child back to God. That is an extremely slippery theological slope, right? Because what does it imply? It implies that if God has something we want, a child, a healing, a promotion, whatever it is, we just have to find something that he wants to offer him in exchange. That's what that implies. And the problem is, we all think this way sometimes. I think we all do it. I remember as a kid, this is just a silly example, but I remember as a kid hearing this story in like Sunday school and then being at home the next day and it was like January and I remember praying, I remember praying, Lord, if you will let it snow so much that we don't have school tomorrow, I'll spend a whole hour reading my Bible Is that how God works? No. But we can read stories like this and it can appear that way and it's really dangerous because it paints God not as a good father who gives good gifts, but as a businessman looking to make a good trade. And so here's the thing I want us to take away from that. Whenever you see something in the Bible that makes you go, huh? Especially in the Old Testament, the very first question I ask is this. Did Jesus say anything about this? Here's our scenario. 
Hannah has something she desperately wants. She'd like to bring a request to the Lord. She does it, it appears, by bargaining with him. But what does Jesus say about bringing our request to the Lord? Ask, and it will be given unto you. But he also says, not my will, but thy will, Father. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? So when we see something like this, it's not supposed to be prescriptive. This is not the way we're supposed to pray. We're not supposed to come to the Lord and be like, hey, I'm in the season of, of barrenness. I'm in the season of disquiet. There's something I really want. I have to figure out what to offer to the Lord. No. We come to the Lord and we say, not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. Okay, then why did God close Hannah's womb? Why did he put her through all this? Because God's timing is not our timing. Samuel's the final judge. He's the one who's gonna facilitate Israel's transition from theocracy to monarchy. Samuel needs to be born at a pretty specific time. All the pieces need to be in place. Samuel's the one who needs to go out into the field and find David, right? So we have to have this thing all aligned. It makes me think of another barren woman, Elizabeth. You remember her story in the New Testament? Elizabeth was barren. It says she was barren and she was old. And she went to the temple and her husband went to the temple and they were promised a child and that child was John the Baptist. John the Baptist who had been foretold by Isaiah 700 years earlier. John the Baptist whose job was to pave the way for Messiah. See, John had to come at a very specific time so that he could pave the way for Messiah. And I think so often when we're in a season of disappointment or we're in a season of barrenness and we stand back and we go, okay, Lord, why are you doing this? It's simply because we don't understand everything that God is doing. We don't understand everything he's working on. Does this mean that every disappointment will be erased and every barren womb will be restored? Not on this side of heaven. But someday, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses and we can clearly see all I believe we will say, wow, Lord, I had no idea what was really going on. I had no idea what you were really doing. Wow, you're so good. Wow, you're so great. He is, he knows what he's doing. And so his timing is not her timing. And so she waits and she will end up having a child. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But Hannah doesn't know about the Lord's timing. And so she's upset still. And she continues to pray, verse 12. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Hannah is deeply distressed. She's extremely emotional. She's depressed, she's disappointed, she's frustrated, she's angry, She's sad. She is fully emotional and fully brokenhearted. And I think that the way she deals with it 
is so beautiful. Because here's the thing about emotions. Our society right now has taken emotions and feelings and elevated them to the place almost of deity where emotions rule. Feelings are everything, right? If we feel something, it's true. And it's not to be questioned and it's to be acted upon, right? Like if I feel like a woman, I'm a woman. And I need to do something to make society and biology align with that. If what you said hurt my feelings, then it's hate speech, even if it was true, even if I needed to hear it. Well, I just don't feel any love for that person anymore, right? Then it's time to get a divorce and go find someone who will make us feel loved again. We've taken feelings and we've said, our lives are to be dictated, ruled by, and owned by our feelings. Feelings are God. Feelings are king. And we aren't supposed to do that. We aren't supposed to elevate our feelings like that, but we're not supposed to suppress them either. Right? Suck it up. Don't show emotions. Crying is weakness. Jesus cried. And when we treat our emotions and our feelings like that, it just leads to pent up anger and poor communication and emotionally stunted and injured people. Hannah is deeply, deeply distressed. And there are times in our lives where we can be deeply distressed and bitter and troubled in spirit and full of anxiety and vexation. And the question is, what in the world are we supposed to do with that? I think we're supposed to do exactly what Hannah does. First, where does she take her emotions? Where does she take her feelings? She takes them to the tabernacle, right? She doesn't take them to her therapist. She didn't take them to her girlfriends. She didn't even take them to her husband, although that probably wouldn't have been helpful. Um, and I'm not saying those are bad. In fact, I think those are all good. I believe God built us for community and we're supposed to have people in our lives who love the Lord and who love us, who we can come alongside with and pour out our hearts to. I think that's good. And I know wonderful godly therapists who do amazing work and they're hugely important, right? And I think we should be able to pour out our emotions, especially in our marriages, especially in our marriages. It's not good that we're alone, right? And husbands, we just need to listen. It'll help. But we so often take all of our feelings, our emotions, our upsets, our distress, and we take them to those sources first. And then when they don't fix it, we come finally into the tabernacle. And that's the wrong order. Hannah takes her emotions to the tabernacle first. And then the second thing she does is once she's there in the presence of the Lord, she does not hold back. She is honest. She airs it all out. She is so upset and sobbing and weeping that the priest is like, you are a crazy drunk lady. And the Bible is like, she is just pouring out her spirit to the Lord. She does not hold back. But she does something, point three, that is so unbelievably important. And it's this. It says this in verse 11, that when she prayed, she prays this. Oh, Lord of hosts. That is a very specific name for God that she uses there. It's called Jehovah Shabbat. And what it is, is it's God's war name. It's God's army name. She is basically praying to a God. When she says that, she says, I'm praying to a God who rules all the nation, all the armies of heaven, who is the king over all of the angels, who can conquer the earth. 
She's praying to God's power. She's anchoring, this is so important, she's anchoring her grief and her anguish in the truth that she knows about God's character. If you read through the Psalms, this is what you'll see over and over and over again. And I really firmly believe it's the right way to deal with our deep distressing emotions. We bring them to the Lord, we hold nothing back, but then we anchor them in the truths that we know about God's character, right? Psalm six, it starts out, my soul is greatly troubled. How long will you wait for me, O Lord? And then it ends, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. The psalmist there is so upset, feels like God is not listening to him. But then at the end he goes, but I know you, Lord. I know your character. I know you're a God who hears prayers. Right? Psalm 130, it's like, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. If you kept a record of wrong, how could I stand? Like he is just feeling guilt-ridden for what has happened in his life. But he ends that psalm in this, hope in the Lord, for in the Lord there is steadfast love pouring out the emotions, but anchoring them in the truth that he knows, my father is a father of steadfast love. Psalm 10, why, Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Like, where are you? That's what Psalm 10 started saying. Where are you, Lord? Ever felt like that? But then he anchors it. You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. I think it's so unbelievably important that we take just like Hannah, we bring our deep distresses, our bitterness, our afflictions, our anxiety, our vexation, we bring them to the temple. We lay them all out at the feet of the Lord. And then we come back to his word and we anchor those things in the characteristics of our father that we know to be true. Hugely important. Because look what happens here. Two things. One is, I think this allows Hannah to not react negatively to all these people around her. I think it's huge. Like, how often is the real issue with intense emotions, the blowback we have when we react negatively to other people, right? And she's got every reason to, right? Like, she could have unleashed on her husband. Like, are you kidding me? I wouldn't be this upset if you hadn't brought Penina around. What were you thinking, right? She doesn't do that, right? She doesn't unleash on Eli. Like, oh, you think I'm drunk? Like those no good sons of yours? She could have. Would you have blamed her? No, but she doesn't because she's pouring her heart out to the Lord and she's anchoring it in what she knows about him to be true. And then see how this little story ends. It's verse 17. It says, then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer Sad. So Eli's just accused her of being drunk, and she's like, I'm not drunk, I'm praying. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Um, may God grant whatever your prayer was. And what's awesome is he has no idea what she's praying for. Like, she could have been praying for Peninnah to be covered in boils. And would you blame her? I wouldn't. But she's not. And he's like, Lord, go grant. He doesn't tell her that she's going to have a child. He doesn't give her any assurances whatsoever. But she walks out, and it says, she lifted her eyes and ate and her face was no longer sad. Do you think that's because of what Eli said? Or do you think that's because she had poured her heart out to the Lord? I think it's the latter. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's the latter. And then it says this in verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. 
Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And then the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Hannah has a son. Hannah tells her husband, I'm not coming this year. I'm gonna wait till I've weaned him. And then when we go to the temple, I'm gonna leave him there. And her husband says, okay, sounds good. I love that. I love how supportive he is of the word that God had put onto Hannah's heart. I love that. So often I think that we think that, and I grew up in a church where it was, I grew up in church and it wasn't a bad thing, but it was like, okay, men and women have different roles and I believe that and we're both equal under God. And there's this idea of male headship in the home and I believe all of that. But then it was taught that like, okay, if there's a disagreement or if there's whatever, then the husband makes the decision, it's his responsibility, that's how it goes. And I'm not saying that that's not accurate, but just hear me out for a second because so often in the Bible, I see God giving a family vision to wives. Here he gives a family vision. This is a family vision. I mean, this is gonna affect their entire family and he doesn't give it to Elkanah, he gives it to Hannah. Who does God come to to say, hey, you guys are gonna have the Messiah. First, he goes to Mary. So often, I think that God speaks into our families through our wives. And so often I think that we can be like, I don't wanna do that and it's my decision, therefore we're moving on. And I think we miss out. I think we miss out. Years ago, I uh, was super excited to go, I wanted to go on a short-term mission trip with my wife and I was doing a bunch of research and I found this short-term mission opportunity in Belize. And I'm like, sweet, fly fishing, scuba diving. I can go suffer for the Lord in Belize. Let's do this, right? So I was making plans. I got like scuba certified, like I'm in. And so we go back to Pennsylvania to go do the training course. And we're there for like a week. And my wife's like, no, we're there for a day. We're supposed to be there for a week. We're there for a day. And my wife's like, I am not feeling good about this. I'm like, ah, it's because you don't like scuba diving. You'll be fine, you know? She's like, next day, she's like, I do not feel good about this. I'm like, no, no, we're, I'm super excited about this, honey. Like, I think you just need to get over it. It's fine. It's, you'll be good. Just pray about it a little bit more, right? It's good. Day three, I am not feeling good about this. And I'm like, all right, I gotta listen. It's time that I listen. The question then is, is God speaking to her or is he speaking to me? Because we both have the Holy Spirit and we have different opinions at this point. And the answer is not for me to go, well, I'm the head of the household, therefore he must be speaking to me and we're going to Belize. Because we weren't supposed to go. Because we spent the rest of the week fasting and praying together. And then after a few days, God was like, thank you, you're finally listening. I've been trying to tell you what I've been telling your wife for a while, you're not supposed to go to Belize. You're supposed to go to Africa, which was less exciting to both of us, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> 
I get the sentiment and I understand that men, we have this responsibility for our families. But I also know this, the Holy Spirit that dwells in me dwells in my wife. And if there's a major decision and we're not in sync, then the question I have, my first question is this, have we done everything we need to be? Have I done everything I should be as a husband to listen to the Holy Spirit and say, okay, what are we really supposed to do as my wife? Have we fasted together? Have we prayed together? Have we sought the scriptures together? Because if the Holy Spirit dwells in both of us, then he should be able to bring us to consensus. There's this really interesting thing at Edgewater as a group of elders, and I think it's pretty unique from everything I've read about the way church governance runs, but we don't vote as elders. Seven of us, we don't vote. We make all decisions unanimously. And the reason put out is the Holy Spirit can convict any one of us when he wants to convict all of us. And if one person's the holdout, or one person's you know, disquieted in their spirit, then it's time for us to all stop. It's time for us to all pray. It's time for us to all seek. Because if we all have God's spirit, then he should be able to bring us all to consensus, right? And for that reason, sometimes it takes us a long time to make decisions. But I'd rather take a long time to make decisions than go with the majority is right and hopefully God spoke to the majority and not that one person to speak to all of us, right? Just an interesting thought. I've been mulling around in my head a lot lately. So finally, we have this. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he is lent to the war, Lord, and he worships the Lord there. Hannah brings Samuel to the tabernacle. He's probably four to five years old at this point in time. And that was typically, it's not that Hannah's like dragging her feet, although that would be understandable. She, that's the, typically the age that children were weaned. Also, it is not a gift to drop off an 18-month-old at the tabernacle, Okay. No one's excited about that. So he, she's got to get Samuel to a point where like, you know, he can go to the bathroom by himself. Fairly important before she drops him off, right? Eli's not prepared to cope with that. So she brings him to the tabernacle and she drops him off. It's such an interesting, like just a cra- is that just crazy? To anybody else, does that seem nuts? Like I know people who won't drop their six-year-olds off in the kid's wing. And I get that, I do, but... I have to tell you, this story right here was really, really, really influential in my wife's life. Like she already gave me permission to share this. In fact, when I, she found out I was teaching this, she's like, you have to share this. This story changed my life. Because there's this thing in moms, and I think moms especially, that your kids are so little and they need everything from you. Like absolutely everything. And it gets to the point where we feel like as moms especially, she said, I'm not a mom, I don't know. Dads are a little bit different. Dads are like, go deal with it, rub it off, right? But moms get to the point where like, they feel responsible for every tiny area of their child's life. And it's because they're nurturing. It's because they're loving. But it's also not 100% accurate. 
So there's this really interesting list that my wife wanted me to share with you guys tonight, and I think it's so important to look at. It's the list of duties that the Bible has laid out for parents, okay? It is to love them, to bring them to Christ, to train them up for God, to instruct them in God's words. This is a huge list, parents. To tell them of God's judgments, to tell them of the miraculous works of God, to command them to obey God, to bless them, to pity them, to provide for them, to rule them, to correct them, not to provoke them, and not to make unholy connections from them. And she said, you know what struck her when she read this was what wasn't on the list to protect them from all harm, to make sure they're always comfortable, to keep them from disappointment, to entertain them, to have them like you. They're not on the list. God gave us a huge list. It's a huge responsibility. But we can start to think that being in charge of your child's, that we're responsible for being in charge of our child's ultimate protection, that their well-being is our job as a parent. There's a lot of jobs as a parent, but their ultimate protection and well-being is not our job. It's God's job. And we're not designed to carry that weight. Our role is to pray for their protection, not to be their protection. She said that for so long as a new mom, she lived in fear. Fear of trying to control everything in her child's life and keep anything bad from happening to them. If there's a flu bug going around, we can't go to church. Be careful of this, be careful of that. She said what she realized was she wasn't in control and she couldn't be. And trying to be was making her and the rest of the family miserable. And you end up parenting out of a position of fear. You're trying to control every scenario and outcome. You feel, these are, these are, these are my wife's notes that I wrote down this morning because they were beautiful and just her thoughts. You feel the need to be part of every experience your child goes through. But what this ends up doing is hampering your family and child's sense of adventure and wonder. It leads to panic attacks. It leads to anxiety. And what you end up doing is passing along a legacy of fear to your kids. You're telling them they can't do anything without you. And then she wrote this down and it just struck me this morning. She said, could the current parenting philosophy of removing every obstacle from our kids, making their lives as easy as possible, be one of the contributing factors to the rise in depression and anxiety and mental health issues in our middle schoolers and high schoolers? What is our job and what is God's job? She's, what she told me she realized from this is that her kids, our kids, are first and foremost God's kids. That God loves my children. My, God loves Veda and Sabine and Cole and that one who's gonna be here in a few weeks that we don't know the name of yet. God loves them more than I ever possibly could. And his arms are bigger and more far reaching than mine ever could be. And then he's given me an unbelievable list of tasks to do, to bring them to Christ, to train them up for God, to instruct them in God's words. This is huge. And when I take these on, he'll empower me and he'll strengthen me and he'll come alongside me. But when I take on all these other things that I cannot do, protect them from every harm, make sure nothing bad ever happens to them, that that's just a weight we were never designed to bear. And that like Hannah, there's a time where we have to say, Lord, this child is yours. 
You have lent them to me. You have asked me to be a good steward of them, but our kids are ultimately God's. And that when she realized that, it was unbelievably freeing. It was like a weight came off. Oh, this is my responsibility. That's your responsibility. I can focus on the things you've given me to do and trust you, Lord, to do the things you said you would do. Hannah is an unbelievable witness to that. She got it. Our kids are God's. Everything we've been given is God's. And there's gonna be times where we go through crazy emotional distress, anxiety, bitterness, vexation, quite possibly because of our kids. And we bring that before the Father. And then we anchor it in the characteristics that we know are true of him. And as we walk forward as people just of faithfulness, bringing our family into fellowship, and people of prayer, pouring ourselves out to the Lord, and we partner with him, that it doesn't matter how evil our times are, or how broken our family is, or how corrupt the system is, God has a great work for every one of us. Amen? So Father, I thank you for 1 Samuel. I thank you for this amazing chapter. For Elkanah, a flawed but faithful man, I thank you for the faithful men of our congregation. I thank you for Hannah, a praying woman. I thank you for the mothers who pray for our kids. I thank you for the grandparents who pray for their grandkids. I thank you for people who don't have kids who are praying for the kids back in the kids' wing. People who are distressed and in deep anxiety pouring themselves out to the Lord, I pray you would meet them even in this hour. And they would be able to anchor those prayers in the characteristics that they know to be true of you, that you're a good father, that you hear prayers, that your hand is not short. Father, we thank you for everything you've given us through your word, for the blessing of gathering together and fellowshipping. In Jesus' name, amen.